that to keep going. Join with me in prayer, please. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity to be here, for the opportunity to look at the history of your people, the history of your church, and just history to understand how we are the way we are today. We pray, Lord, that you be glorified by our interactions here and in the service as well. We give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I'm going to bend that a little bit. Okay. So, we've been talking through history for, obviously, a while. Um, and we're in what's called the Age of Enlightenment, heading toward what you can call the Age of Revolution, where everything suddenly gets, like, uh, popular to change everything. You just have literally revolutions everywhere. Governments are toppling, kings are toppling, etc. But before that, we kind of talk a little bit about the seeds of that. What's the foundation of that? What, what sets the stage for all these revolutions to even happen? So, as we talk about different kinds of revolutions, not just political, it's helpful to look at how society changes, how science changes, how, well, everything changes. Anyway, we've talked a little bit about Carlos II. Anybody remember Carlos II? The severely inbred guy. The king of Spain who is, the, yes, great time to come in. Product of the Habsburg line in Spain, and you get to see that Habsburg lip and jaw just keep getting bigger and bigger from generation to generation, right? They became famous to have a lip, a Habsburg chin that's sticking out. Well, Carlos is struggling. He became king when he was only three. Uh, he loved about this favorite thing that he did when he was a kid was just kind of, as I say here, clambering through the palace. And I say clambering because he couldn't even walk till he was eight. Couldn't speak until he was almost five, um, never could chew. He's just struggling. Really don't date your sister. Really struggling uh, as a kid. But the only thing he did was have a lot of fun with that, and he presided at what we refer to as the auto de fe at uh, the Inquisition back in his teens, where you would have this mass trial of people that you considered heretics. He loved doing that. So he judged 120 heretics, 21 of which they burned at the stake, or boiled in a cauldron. Kind of depends on which version of the story you listen to. But he was giddily happy about that. He clapped and clapped and clapped. Wacky fun being king. Anyway, he eventually became a little frustrated with the Inquisition. The Inquisition was struggling at about the time that they started wondering if he was demonically possessed. Because when you think about it, how else do you explain the fact that he had all these mental and physical disabilities? How else do you explain the fact that he can't seem to produce a child? Because it certainly can't be genetic, because all there is in his family line is royals, and we know that royal blood is the best blood. So what's the what's the problem here? It has to be demonic, doesn't it? Again, before you pick too much on them, they didn't quite understand the whole thing about genetics at this point. Plus, you really, especially in France and, and, and Spain, where they, they had this complete totalitarian rule, um, anything that you could say to try to explain that you shouldn't date your sister is not going to go over well, because you got to say, well, even royal blood, even royal blood, if, if, if you don't mix in some other things, is going to go unhealthy places. And that's what gets you in trouble with kings. You just don't get to say that. So, his confessor and the inquisitor general got together and tried an exorcism. They're going to take the demon of bad genetics away from Carlos II. 
strangely, that didn't work. He still remained Carlos II. Was he all for it, thinking maybe I am possessed? Um, I'm not even sure that we can go there with with Carlos. I mean, I, I don't know that he was mentally capable of those kinds of things. Uh, um, I'm not even sure he understood entirely what they were doing. But the, the Inquisitor General finally came to the conclusion that maybe it's Diaz, the, the, the confessor. Maybe the confessor brought the demon on him. Because the confessor doesn't... Because I'm the Inquisitor General, and if I can't remove the demon, why is that? It must be the guy working with me doing it, right? Well, poor Bishop Diaz uh, then blamed the queen. Oh, um, okay, never mind. Because, so, I, mean, I mean, what are you going to do? This is a time of saying, well, it's not my fault. It can't be me. And if it's not me, it, it's Dave. You know, it's, that's what it is. It's, uh, so it's, you got to look around. you got to find somebody else to blame because it's not me. It can't be the king. It can't be this is royal blood. It can't be. Nobody likes her. We like the first queen. The first queen was really nice, and then somebody poisoned her. So we had to get a whole new queen, and we imported one from Germany. We got Maria Anna of Neuburg in Germany, and nobody in Spain likes her. So she's a wonderful fall guy. Um, we don't like her because she, she tends to yell at everybody all the time, because she's German. No, because she's a mean person. She yells at people all the time. She keeps stealing art away from all the palaces and sending them back to Germany. What? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> prototype for the Nazi. Now, so yeah, she's uh, and she's part of the, the growing house of the of the Wittensbachs. The Wittensbachs we haven't heard much about yet, but you'll hear more about them as time goes on. So nobody likes her. She doesn't even speak Spanish very well. So she's the person. Of course, if she's the one that brought the demon in, that's a problem because he was like this long before he ever met her. But the S is just kind of like any port in a storm. Nobody likes her. She's the demon-possessing person. It's her. It's her. <laughs> so, of course, she demands that Diaz be tried and convicted of heresy. On the spot. Convict him right now. It's just starting to get ugly over there in Spain. All of this made even Carlos go, Wait. I think somebody probably needs to investigate the investigators. You guys have had no oversight with anything for a while. What's going on? Something, you guys, you're not doing this right. So he called for what is called a junta magna, a, a great council, to come and investigate the Inquisition. Because <laughs> if you remember, when we started talking about this, everybody always talks about the Spanish Inquisition as if it were like the most horrible thing ever. It was never what you'd call a nice thing. But it really wasn't anywhere near as bad as anybody tends to remember it. Part of that is because of that, what's referred to as the black legend, that all the northern European countries start talking about all the southern European countries as nasty because they're doing well. You know, Spain is starting to, to become important and, and Spain is starting to have uh, conflict with, with England. Therefore, England says everything about Spain must be horrible. And so even though England's witch killers killed so many more people than the Inquisition, they don't like talking about they don't like talking about those guys. Matthew Hopkins? No, 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 never happened. But the Spanish Inquisition, they were the, the ultimate torturers. And you go, well, no, that's just bad press. By this time though, well, 
Lord Acton said what? Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And these guys had absolute power. So, there were a lot of problems, especially just in these last couple of decades of the, of the 17th century. In 1691, they'd arrested the Protestant servant of the ambassador to England as a heretic, and, 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 which you're not really supposed to do. This is part of the ambassadorial staff. You're not supposed to be messing with the staff. They're like, but he's a Protestant. Well, everybody in England is. What's your point? Oh, he's a Protestant. So they arrested him. They tried him. They exhumed the corpse of the ambassador's Anglican chaplain so that they could mutilate him in public and hang his corpse in public and say, look, arch heretic, because he's a chaplain. He's a pastor of these non-Catholics. Is it any wonder that the British even now tend to not like the Spanish Inquisition? Why they keep promulgating this, this black legend? Because it's like, we really, really hate these guys. On the island of Majorca, the, the, the leadership built themselves this huge, beautiful palace built with the funds that they confiscated from one investigation of one Jewish family. And they investigated tons of people. So these guys are rolling in dough. They have no political oversight. They can do anything that they want. They are so politically powerful that even Rome hasn't messed with them for a little while. The Inquisition also started giving all sorts of power and privilege to its people, its own members, to their family members. This has become a political powerhouse. And all these things that they took, all these things that they gave, it, it starts looking like you get investigated if your stuff looks good. You know, if you are wealthy enough, and you may be a heretic, you are a heretic and will confiscate all your stuff. Again, anything where they started with this whole idea of we want to keep doctrine pure, we want to make sure that we keep people on the right track, that seems to have gone away by now, by this point in the game. In fact, the Junta Magna found enough things that were so condemning that the new Inquisitor General, Balthazar, convinced Carlos to destroy the document. He's like, we, we failed so horribly in your investigation that if you make those findings public, they'll shut down the Inquisition completely. You wanted to just make sure we were doing it right. You didn't want to stop the Inquisition completely. So, get rid of the evidence. Which, uh, which they did. All copies of it were burned. When the next king came along and said, can I at least see what the findings were? They didn't exist anymore. Can you imagine, can you imagine a government where if something is big enough and potent enough and it fails big enough, they'll just bail it out? Can you, can you, can you try to wrap your head around what would possibly make a government do that? Yeah, I think you did, right? I think we can. I think we just saw that. Yeah. Yep. Same kind of mindset here. If you're big enough and important enough, if you fail, we'll make sure that you don't fail. If Randy does something horrible, he's going to jail. If Ben does something horrible enough, we might even we might even execute him. But if a major thing does something far worse than anything either of these guys has ever done, bury the evidence, because I mean we can't shut down the Inquisition. Having said that, even by the time that the next king, Philip, comes along, Felipe, comes along, the Inquisition never has quite the same kind of power anymore. Because starting with Felipe, the next Felipe, he starts saying, you know, I don't trust you. 
and I'm going to start putting safeguards on you. I'm going to start having government watchdogs look at you. You don't get to have a free hand anymore. And within even a couple of decades, the Inquisition basically just becomes a political censor. Anybody that's saying things that we don't like, we just tell them they, they can't say that anymore. But these, these big audit of phase, these big, we get to torture whoever we want, we, we're all about doctrine, you go, yeah, no, not anymore. Not after this. Carlos, Carlos was a combination of both completely inept and vaguely apt to, to actually look into the Inquisition, but inept enough that he was willing to destroy the evidence, and Felipe comes along and goes, now, that's, it's just, it's crossed the line. You have completely jumped the shark. We don't get to do this anymore. So this, thanks to Carlos, becomes kind of the end of what we normally think of when we think of the Spanish Inquisition. Anyway, Carlos, though, dies. Uh, in fact, uh, one historian, a guy named Durant, that I, I really, really like, um, said he kind of astounded everybody by not dying until this point. It's almost like, he's like 38 years old, almost 39 years old, and still alive, even with all these physical infirmities. And everybody's just like, how? How on earth are you still alive? Everybody's fighting against Spain, and you have no strength at all. How on earth are you still alive? Anyway, but he leaves no heirs. There's no Habsburgs in Spain, strangely enough, to take over the line. So what happens? The Habsburgs say, all right, tell you what, cousin Karl I over there in Germany, why don't you why don't you take him? That'll be good. We'll keep it in line. You notice the notice the, the long nose, the, the, the lip, the chin? He's a Habsburg. You can see him from a mile away. Though the Spanish people say, you know, there's a slightly less distant cousin, young Josef Ferdinand. We like him. You know, if, if we're gonna have to have a Habsburg, let's do this guy. The Habsburg said, no, 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 no. Other guy, other guy, other guy. But this guy's actually related to our last king. Felipe the Fourth. He's just like grandson. We we could handle that, because at least there'd be some sort of connection to Spain. But he's also a Middlesbach. And so there are some people that sit there and go, Well, we didn't like the Queen, so we're not gonna like him. So there's all this politics going on. The French say, you know, we got a guy named Philippe who's from the House of Bourbon, who's actually technically legally in the line of succession. We think he should be king. He's also the grandson of Louis XIV, who is still around. For those of you who are sitting there going, man, haven't we been talking about Louis XIV? Yes, he was king for 2,000 years. 1,912. He was king forever. He was king for such a long time. And he married one of Carlos's sisters. And so you say, well, I guess we're related enough. I guess technically he should be king. The Germans are busy fighting each other. The Germanic ones is like, well, do, do you want to do it? No, I'm going to do it. I want to do it. Well, he should do it. Take a note, GOP. You know, these guys are fighting each other so much that the French actually kind of get the upper hand. And Louis, though, is busy fighting pretty much everybody else in Europe in something that's called the Nine Years' War. And he has no money anymore. I mean, when I say he has no money, France has no money. Louis still has money. He still has like lobster every night. He's the, his people are starving, but he's doing great. But so he's like, how do I? How do we settle this? Everybody's fighting everybody else. We don't know what to do. So he says, tell you what, let's get a neutral person. Let's actually turn to William of Orange. Remember him? 
King of England, the Dutch, King of England. Yeah, then the Dutchman claps. So, <laughs> William, we trust you. Everybody seems to like you, except for the English. So, why don't you come in, tell us what we're going to do. So, William says, all right, I will negotiate a deal. I'll listen to everybody. I'll look at what everybody brings to the table. I'll negotiate a deal. So, the Habsburgs get Milan. This now turns into Austrian territory over here. The Wittelsbachs get the Netherlands. What used to be the Spanish Netherlands are now the Bavarian Netherlands. Because those Dutch just cannot handle themselves. Um, and the Bourbons get Spain. Which makes them crazy powerful, doesn't it? I mean, technically these are two different nations. Right? But this is all Bourbon territory. Half of Europe now is Bourbon territory. That's kind of significant, isn't it? Now, if you're playing diplomacy, you're doing well there. If you're playing diplomacy, it's good to be France. It's, by the way, that is why France is blue here, is because it's blue in diplomacy. I couldn't get that. <laughs> you know, it's Germany is black, so I mean, it's the whole schmear. Anyway, what was I saying? Oh, yes, so. Sorry. That's all right. As a result, because of all this, the Dutch church ends up breaking off from Rome. Now that the largely Bavarian or largely Lutheran Bavarians are in charge of the Netherlands instead of the extremely Catholic Spanish, the Dutch feel a little bit more freedom to make up some of their own decisions on some things. For a while, I mean, used to be, used to be that they um, they were very very open to just about everybody coming in. For a while there, while Spain was in charge of the Netherlands, it's like they, they clamped down on anything other than hardline Catholicism. But now they're like, oh, this is cool. We can support this influx of Jansenists coming from France, which is actually a, a sect of Catholicism that has theology a lot like um, the Calvinists. And so uh, following a guy named uh, uh, Bishop Cornelius Janssen. Pardon me? I was going to the Calvinist part, but I was, yeah. I was trying to do a lot of Nazarene. There you go. Yay, Calvinists. And the Dutch love the Calvinists. So they're like, wait, this is great. Calvinist Catholics. It's like, perfect. Yeah, yeah, those guys are great. Come on in. Join us. Enjoy. Be part of our, our church here. That's awesome. But then the new Pope, Clement XI, of, remember from him from last week? Of, he tells you to stop doing such a good job over there in China. Fame. Remember this guy? Clement. Oh, yeah. Forget about who's doing stuff well. Do stuff the way we want you to do it. Yeah, but this is working. No, no. Do it the way we want you to do it. Clement says, nope, we're censuring all that. No Jansenists, nothing uh, Calvinistic. You guys love your vicar, Petrus Cog. Nope. You got to censure him. Got to get rid of him. But we, re we really like him, and we really like the Jansenists. Nope, nope. Got to censor him. We're wrong. You got to do what we tell you to do. In protest, the Dutch Catholic Church removed itself from the jurisdiction of Rome. They're like, we're still Catholic. We're just not you Catholic. Which is an interesting idea. That they didn't say we're Protestants. They're not pro they're not protesting Catholicism. We're just protesting you. We're just protesting Rome. We're still Catholic, just not you. So they get this <laughs> they get this Irish archbishop to come in. Because of course the Irish are sitting there going, Yeah, we're doing our own thing. Just constantly doing our own thing. And so they bring this archbishop in from Ireland to ordain their, their priests in a new 
Catholic Church, which ironically has become known as the Old Catholic Church of the Netherlands. Because what they're saying is, is that, that Rome actually screwed up and changed. We're the only ones that kept it going. Because in every timeline of the church that you'll ever see in any denomination, they're the core of it, right? Everybody else split from them. So if you look at the Eastern Orthodox, well, of course, we're the core of it. I mean, we're, we're sitting right here. You guys are over there in Europe. We're, we're right here in where Jesus was. We're the ones that did. And Rome's like, oh, we're the core of it. I mean, we had Peter. He was the Pope. I mean, it's us. Any good Baptist will say, y'all just left it. We're the core of it, right? This, we're the only ones that held on the old church, of the, the Catholic Church of the Netherlands. 1702, also as part of ripple effects of even some of this stuff, Queen Anne's War broke out. You guys studied Queen Anne's War in, in high school, right? No! I loved high school. I loved high school history, and we didn't study this, which is just plain wrong. William of Orange dies. William, King William III dies. What? Did you boo, or did you, did you cheer? You booed. William of Orange, who it, I kind of like all the way around. He's gone now. And he was succeeded by his sister-in-law, Anne, of the Stuarts. So she's, she's a good English monarch. So she's extremely popular. Everybody in England says, Anne rocks. She's awesome. That's great. Because she's kind of a babe. I mean, she, if you read stuff at the time, they're all like, she's beautiful. She's much prettier than William of Orange. <laughs> <laughs> she was extremely charismatic, extremely pretty, and she saw herself as a quintessential English monarch. She's like, my... So single? That too. No. Unlike, unlike my Dutch brother-in-law. Everybody in England begged William of Orange to come, right? They're like, please come, take over our kingdom. But then after a while, they didn't like him because he's Dutch. But she's, she's the daughter of King James II, uh, the guy who had been the Duke of York and the head of the, uh, the Admiralty when the British took over New Amsterdam. So New York was actually named after him. So that guy. She's the daughter of King James II. He's pro-Catholic. Uh, they, the, the people had begged, begged William to overthrow him because they're like he's, he's just so Catholic. In fact, he had, he had gotten his decidedly Catholic son baptized as an infant in the Catholic Church. His son James Francis Edward Stuart, who's still trying to become king, even after his sister, his older sister Anne, is on the throne. James is still bouncing around, trying to get support. He's like, well, but I'm the boy. I get to be king. She doesn't get to be queen. I get to be king. But there's a whole, there's a whole English law that Catholics don't get to be royals in England. So to be a royal in England, you've got to be a not Catholic. So Francis, uh, James Francis Edward Stuart here is, is not, not, not a very happy young man. Anyway, she's smart, though. And she's like, you know, I've played diplomacy. And, and I see that France and Spain are taking over everything. They've got half of Italy, they've got Spain, they've got all those islands, they've got France, they've got most of the New World. No, 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 no. Once these guys actually get out of bankruptcy court, once these guys actually start coordinating, they're going to be a problem. So she immediately declares war on them. She's like, I'm queen, I like the hat. War. I mean, just jumps right into it. 
and this is important, the majority of fighting is going to happen over here in the Americas, not in Europe. Now, why is that important? Why would you say that's that's significant, other than the fact that we're sitting in America? Not directly. I mean, you can have a big old war and not feel it other than maybe some economic fight in Europe, which means it can go on for a while. What else? situation. I mean, normal people, you, I mean, you feel that way today with stuff, you know, when our troops are in the Middle East, it's kind of like, you know, stuff's happening over there, but it's not like anybody invaded Grand Rapids or right. Chicago. It's all in news reports, and these news reports are going to be months old by the time you hear them. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, you... You didn't really have that sense even in the, in the modern world until Vietnam. You started having a televised war where you could actually see what's going on today. What are you going to say? Because they have anything to do that we're not speaking Spanish or French. It really does. There's all, very good, all these different things. Interesting developments, that being one of them. I'm going to get ahead of myself here and say um, the English didn't lose Queen Anne's War, obviously, because... You know, they're, they're speaking English things. Um, and so that's kind of a key one, is that this is the first time in the New World that the British are asserting themselves over the French and, and Spanish. For a little while, the British have actually been kind of the done-tos. Now they're going to start getting back into being the ones in charge of the situation here. But it also means, instead of England's armies going up against Spain and France's armies, it's English colonists going up against French and Spanish colonists. And England had 250 colonists in the New World at this time, 250,000 colonists in the, in the world at this time, and France and Spain together had like three to 4,000 colonists. Larger territory, fewer people. So now England's armies may not be as potent as France and, and Spain's armies, but their colonists are better. So by doing it this way, you have a much better shot of winning the war, right? Much better odds in favor of England. But it's also interesting that as a result, all these English colonies start building forts. Because they never had big stone forts before. I mean, they, they might have put walls around to keep out Native Americans and things, but you need a stone fort in key positions to fight against modern armies. So England actually, you've got to wrap your head around how important this is. England actually pays the colonists to build forts against foreign enemies. That's going to come back and fight you. You think? You think? <laughs> they say, we're going to send troops over to train American militias so that they know how to fight modern armies. We're going we're gonna to send over weapons and ammunition and things and teach them how to do it. Yeah? Does this happen so many other times? No. No, there's never, <laughs> there's never been a time where a government has gone in, trained a local body, and then went, not buddies! We gotta fight those people 50 years later! Yeah, never happened. Ever again. Okay. Again, let me clarify. There's lots of reasons to study history. Especially if you're gonna, like, I don't know, lead a country. Uh, yeah. It's not only that history tends to repeat itself, though it does, but rather that you say, people don't change. An individual can change, technologies change, government shift and things, but in general, in general, all left to its lonesome, 
The secular world will pretty much do the exact same things over and over and over again. We will do the same things in the same conditions. Because that's natural. You look at this kind of stuff and you go, well, why don't people learn from this? I'd say in large part because we don't study this. We sit around going, I don't like history. History is just the good parts version of stuff what happened to people. And it's the stuff that's really important. I was shocked when I started reading about Queen Anne's War and how important it was that I'd never heard about this growing up. And loving history. Studying history and, 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 and never heard anybody talking about this. This was huge. This is all huge. By the time that the, the war ended in 1713, and, and in and amongst all this, concurrently with this, there's also the Tuscarora War between the English and the Dutch and the German colonists in North Carolina and the Tuscarora Iroquois Confederacy. So while the English are fighting the French and Spanish, near the end of that, the English, the Dutch, and the Germans come together to fight the, the, this Native American Confederacy. Is that important? Why? What does that do? Yes, colonial power against the Native Americans, which also helps set a precedent that had been going on for a while anyway with that. Yes? It's also drawing together colonists from different backgrounds, so they start seeing themselves more as a cohesive colonist instead of just, I'm English, Dutch, German. Yeah, it's not, and it's not just, well, we're the Maryland colony, you're the Massachusetts and this, and we're the, there's still that. And it's not just that, well, we're the English and you're the Dutch, and they're the Germans. No, there's still that. But for the first time, they're all coming together for a common cause. Again, we see ourselves as one clump fighting against an enemy together. Let's go, again, this time period is huge to understanding what happens 50 years later. Absolutely huge. So the Treaty of Utrecht divides the New World up, significantly increasing British territories. All of a sudden, we get everything around, we, 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 they, all of a sudden, they get everything around the Hudson Bay. They get they get Newfoundland and Nova Scotia. The colonies get bigger. They we, to get a little bit of, of, of uh, Florida here. This is still Spanish territory, though almost every Spaniard in, in, in Florida is dead now. And there's like three guys wandering around in, in Florida. Because, there's still no name Floridians in Florida. No, there's, there's Native Americans in, in Florida. But... Um, but it was, it was always a sparsely held Spanish territory, and in the midst of all these wars, that was pretty much depopulated. So there's, there's almost no Spaniards living in Florida, though they technically still retain rights to Florida. But, and you'll notice, it, just everybody's claiming more territory. There's less of this, nobody cares, sections of, of, of the Americas anymore. More and more, everybody's saying, that's mine, oh, that's mine, well, that part's mine, well, that river's mine. Kind of a big deal. But the Treaty of Utrecht also changes lots of stuff going on in Europe. Smidgy bits, but important smidgy bits. So, Anne worked to mend fences with, with, with Scotland, and now we've got a uni unified England and Scotland. Technically, they've had Ireland for a while, just Ireland refuses to admit it. So, I mean, Scotland actually sits there and goes, well, this could work for our benefit, much like the recent vote. You guys paid attention to that? Scotland recently voted about whether or not to, to deunify. Yeah, and Scotland voted to stay part of the of the Commonwealth. And the same, you know, same sort of rationales here. They're like, well, it's kind of nice to have the British Army on our side instead of invading our country. Kind of nice they can actually help us. Uh, we're, we're in debt right now, so it'd be helpful to have the money, etc. And Ireland just goes, no, we're free. <laughs> Nobody else here thinks they are, but they do. So. 
So she's like, let's get. So t technically, this is all red. Just no, no Irishman would actually admit that. Um, but they're like, yep, we're, we were one unified country in large part because James is growing up, and James really wants to be king of England, and particularly he's fomenting rebellion in Scotland. Now remember, we talked about the Jacobite rebellion before. His father, King James II, wanted to get back on the throne. And what's the, what's the Latin version or the, even the Hebrew version of James? Jacob, yeah. Or Jacob, James is the Anglicized version of Jacob, however you want to look at So the Jacobites are the people who are following the Jameses, the James boys. Um, so James II, that was the first Jacobite rebellion. James Stuart, his son, second Jacobite rebellion, but instead of trying it in Ireland this time, which pretty much got crunched, this time he's going to Scotland and trying to get people there to follow him. And so Anne is like, I want the Scottish to rightfully and legally declare me their own monarch. They need to stop helping the, helping the other stewards and start helping this steward. And it's interesting, she uses a bunch of different ways of doing that, including bribes and spies like Daniel Defoe. Anybody know what books Daniel Defoe wrote? No. Robinson Crusoe. That's more against it's uh, James Fenmore Cooper. Uh, and the, the Journal of the Plague Year. There you go. Dude, I even texted you this week. <laughs> I just handed you the answer. Anyway. Um, so this guy's a popular writer. Everybody's reading him right now. He's, he's all the right. Which means he gets to go everywhere. He gets to go to all the parties. He gets invited to all the royal functions, all that kind of stuff. And he's totally a spy for England. This should be a movie. I have no idea why this isn't a movie yet. But there's this, there's this popular, well-dressed, foppish, British, English writer guy who's like totally famous, but he's using all of that just to help Queen Anne and sway the unification of England and Scotland and, and inform on the Scottish all the time. Look it up sometime. Really interesting stuff. Everybody just goes, yeah, he's the guy that wrote Robinson Crusoe. That's all I need. Anyway. Where was I going with that? Oh, so Queen Anne is like, I will do anything ruthlessly to push this through and make sure that I am Queen of Scotland as well as Queen of England. So, 1713, here's how Europe changes. First, Savoy gets Sicily, the, the little football there that's getting kicked by the food. The Habsburgs get the Netherlands and all of Spain's holdings, including Sardinia. So Bavaria is like, wait, we got the Netherlands for like five minutes? Yes, yes. You had it for like a decade. That's it. And then you're done. Now it goes back to the Habsburgs. And, and poor Netherlands is like, well, I'm glad we didn't get rid of all those flags. And let's just you know, pull them off the walls and stuff, put it back up. We're very familiar with these flags. But what this does is, if you look at it, diplomacy-wise, these guys just lost some territory, and these orange guys just gained some territory, right? So now you've got two major superpowers banging heads in Europe. The British love that. And the British are like, oh, this is, we can work with this. This is good. As long as we keep these guys pounding on each other, we can just keep getting supply ports everywhere else. I'm sorry, it's more diplomacy references. Anyway, same time that all this is going on, because this is technically a church history class, right? All this is actually important for church history, because, I mean, we're, we're seeing how 
the politics of things are forming how the different churches react to stuff. But more specifically with church history, there's a guy named Bartholomeus Ziegenbald. It's not really that hard to say, but somehow it's hard to wrap my tongue around. He became the first Protestant missionary to India in 1706. Um, he's a Lutheran pietist. Okay, do you remember the pietists? Who are the pietists? It's been a while, which is... And some of you go, oh, I've not even been here for that. Anybody remember who, who the pietists were? Oh, well, this is... A little bit, yeah. But this is for all those people going, I don't know why we have this class. That's okay, here. Pietists followed the teachings of a guy named Philip Jakob Spener, who was a Lutheran pastor who taught that if you're going to be a Christian, you really have to live like a Christian. You, you really have to live a pious life, thus piety, thus pietists. So you've got you to live every day as if that's actually important. Back in 1675, he published a, a book called Pia Desideria, which, or Desideria, I can't talk today outlining the basics of what the pietists believe. He's like, you need to not lie. You need to not steal. You need to not do these things. Which, we look at today and we go, yeah, I mean, the Bible even says that. But at this time, that's not what most people would consider being a Christian. What would most people consider being a Christian at this time? Going to church? Pardon? Tithing? Being baptized? Taking communion. I grew up in a Christian family. I was born in Sweden, therefore I'm part of the Swedish church. Most people wouldn't care. The leaders do. But most people are still, the, the, the rank and file person in the church, they're still like, well, I'm in Germany, so I guess that makes me a Lutheran. Oh, look, I, I walked over to, uh, walked from Germany, yeah. I walked over to Italy, and I guess that means I'm Catholic now. To most people, they don't really care. They're like, some people do. Some people do. They are the ones that tend to get imprisoned and write books and things. But most of the people, most of the people in Europe right now, being a Christian means I go to church, I pay my tithe, I grew up in a Christian family, I grew up in a country that's essentially Judeo-Christian. It's like what's most convenient to me. Exactly. So at the time, it was just a given that you were a Christian. Oh, yeah. But were there the other face like Muslim and all that stuff in there too? Not floating around, not floating around Europe very okay. much. In fact, Europe had worked very hard to try to remove all that. Now there's still that Ottoman presence over in the east, so some of the Eastern European countries are, are, are having something of a mishmash with that. But even then, they, it tends to be a very violent altercation. And there's not a tolerance for both kinds. But, the Moors in Spain. Um, yeah, they got. Not really. They got kicked out. The last Moor got officially kicked out in 1492. Because that's what Ferdinand and Isabella, the, 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 the king and queen that sent off Columbus, their big thing was 1492, the year that will be remembered as the, the year that we kicked out the last Jew and the last Moor from Spain. Now there's still strong Moorish influences, even down to the language and the architecture, and even in some of the theology going on in Spain. But yeah, they're very proud of the fact that there are no actual Muslims in Spain. So, um, but here, the, the idea is that people thought that they were Christians if they had the trappings of a Christian. Uh, not even the, the they, they acted like a Christian. If they were in a Christian country, they attended a Christian church, they tithed. Now, help me out here. Do you see any echoes of that in how even in America today, people tend to think about 
I'm a Christian. Why? Well, because I go to church. That makes me a Christian, doesn't it? I'm a Christian. How do you know? Well, I mean, I grew up in a Christian family. That makes me a Christian, right? I'm a Christian. Why? Well, I mean, I tithe. I do what I'm supposed to do, right? <laughs> the rest of the week is mine. I can do whatever I want. I, I remember seeing somebody a couple of years ago on a, on, a, on, a, on, a, um, on a talk show that was talking about, uh, now he's, he was Catholic, but it, I think it's, it's true of a lot of, of, of faiths in America. Uh, somebody was talking about the importance of actually living out his faith. He's just like, I do. I go to confessional every week. The rest of the week is mine. God has that time. The rest of the week is mine. And then I apologize, I apologize for it at, at Mass, and then I move on. But this is mine. I get to do whatever I want. That's the, i got to deal with God now. It works nicely for me. He was, a, he was a devoutly Catholic stripper. And they were like, how does that work? And this is how I explained it. He's just like, because God doesn't care. As long as, I do my, as long as I pay my tithe, and as long as I take communion, and as long as I'm confessional, I say, I've sinned, I did something naughty. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then I'm going to keep going back and doing the exact same thing. That's the way this works. Well, that would have been nice, but shh, we don't get to do that anymore. Um, Vatican II. Uh, but, but that's the thing is, you, uh, people today still struggle with this. We still struggle with thinking, as long as I go to church, as long as I'm born in a Christian family, as long as I'm in America, which is a Christian nation, which, no, it's not. Um, it's like, yeah, then that automatically makes me a Christian. You don't, no, it, uh, it doesn't. Having a, having a faith in Christ, having a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that's what makes you a Christian. Being changed from the inside out, that's what makes you a Christian. And isn't it more comfortable if someone says they're a Christian just take them at their word? Isn't it? Oh, absolutely. It's a lot easier on your church roles. You don't have to do a discipline from a church side. It's a lot easier as a Christian if you can just sit there and go, I don't actually have to do anything with it. I'm just de facto Christian. Oh, yeah, it's just easier all the way around. It just has the merit of not actually being true, but it's easier. We love doing stuff that's easier, even if it's not true. So, he says, doesn't matter. You get baptized, you have your name on an official membership, that's great. But you need to live out your life with Christ on a daily basis. He's not doing it as a works-oriented thing, though some people claim that that's what they're doing. He's just saying, if you really mean this, live it. Live like you actually care about this kind of stuff. Something like that. Um, actually, something like that, yeah. Um... They, uh, even some of the early uh, Pietists even had, what was it? Um, it's like, uh, gosh, now it's been a while since. Now yeah, I shouldn't say because it it's been a while since. They had like little little Jesus. I don't remember whether they were like buttons or or coins or something, but little things to remind them to think like Jesus. So you laugh, but yes. You know, as part of that, the Swedish Pietists instituted what they called covenanticles where they got together in small group Bible studies together to covenant to study scripture together. The Swedish pietists eventually broke away from the Church of Sweden, the state church, and started what became known as the Evangelical Covenant Church, which is why we call ourselves the Covenant Church. Again, so people who sit there and go, I don't know why we're in a history class. It's our history! <laughs> and this is something I really appreciate about the Covenant. You sit there and you go, the name of the denomination points back, though, Three people remember this. Well, no, not like 20 people remember it. The name covenant points back to small group Bible studies. And so you wonder why, I, sometimes people wonder why I'm like, get in a small group. Really ought to be part of a small group. 
I was doing this kind of stuff even before I even realized that this is what the covenant was, was coming from. But this is a crucially important thing. Anyway, but I'm talking about uh, uh, Tegenbaum. Uh, so, so he's this Lutheran pietist, and he's invited to India by King Frederick, Frederick IV of Denmark. Why is the king of Denmark inviting a German to India? <laughs> and because Denmark controlled the eastern coast of, Europe, of India at this time. Because of course they did. Go figure. The world is a wacky place at this time. You've got all sorts of different people in charge of all sorts of different parts. And so there's this chunk of India that the Danes are, 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 are controlling. And he says, I want you to bring a Protestant mission to, to the people. There had been this Syrian church presence, there had been a Catholic presence, but no Protestant missionaries have ever been in India. So, being a, a Protestant king, I'm going to find me a missionary and send him over there, in our little pocket of India that we have. Because that's going to be popular. So, Dickenbaugh preached pietism and brought a printing press with him. Which was kind of huge. They, used, they had printing presses, but they didn't it just kind of fizzled out. Nobody knows exactly why. But India was prime. They're just like, pretty press, we love these things. You start mass-producing literature, they're like, this is awesome. He even taught himself Tamil so that he could print in the native language. He really stunk at it at first. Um, you know, he was famous for preaching, and when he was preaching, everybody thought he was just nuts. Ducks fly on two heads and spaghetti everywhere. Everywhere. Christianity, it is inherently wrong to treat somebody as if they were a lesser human being, or even no human being at all. We are all brothers in Christ, and I don't care whether you're a Brahmin, and I don't care whether you're untouchable, everybody is on the same footing with Christ. And people are like, yeah, that must be bad. India, I can't understand what he's saying, because that's just crazy talk. He gets in a lot of trouble with that. Okay, anyway. 1711, he had completed his, the first translation of the New Testament in the language. And for the first time, they could read the Word of God in their own tongue. Um, actually, he was a perfectionist. By that time, seriously, by that time, he had been studying it for a long time, and he finished it mostly in like 1708. He'd spent three years passing it by people over and over and over and changing things and changing things and changing things. So yeah, I mean, when he first started off, he, he was stunk at it, but he got enough people reading it so that by the time he got it published, it was apparently pretty decent. He crossed paths with people that Well, that's, yeah, that's an interesting thought because um, uh, traditionally, Thomas, and, and he probably did, Thomas went to India and started the church there that, that had been continuous since then. And so arguably some of the Christians that he was, he was coming into, especially that, the Syrian church that, uh, that he, he came into, was probably a direct result of Thomas's ministry, which is, which is interesting. So, I mean, he was, he was not just preaching to, to people who didn't know Christianity. Sometimes he was preaching to people that had uh, at least a nominal understanding of Christianity. Ironically, he kept getting in trouble with um, the powers that be, the local Danish authorities. Who asked him to be there. Who asked him to be there, yes! On the charges that by converting the local Indian peoples to Christ, he was 
tacitly fomenting rebellion, I'm going to read this, by giving the underclasses a voice in society. So they asked him to come in and reach people. But because he was trying to flatten out the caste system upon which even the Danish occupation was based, all of a sudden they're like, uh, I don't think we want you here. You asked me here. No, we don't think you like it. Because, again, can you picture a government possibly asking for something and then going, nuts, we got exactly what we paid for. That's bad. <laughs> to the people of India, especially in eastern India, it's still a cultural hero to a lot of the people. In fact, this photograph of them is from an official stamp in India. Because they're like, this guy rocks. What? I don't know. Oh, no, 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 that's right. What did you, what did you say? It's a five-piece count. I don't know. So, have you seen this stamp? Yes, sir. Okay. Have you heard of this guy? <laughs> well, don't feel bad, because there's a lot of American heroes that we have no... 95% of what you think you know about Johnny Appleseed not true, okay? Um, what? <laughs> it was... He didn't play Apple He was kind of this cult guy. Kind of. That's a whole other... We'll talk about Johnny Appleseed. Actually, it wasn't really in about 150 years, we'll be talking about... Sure. No, no. Still so, this year. Wait a minute. So, okay. they had to get rid of him because then he still has that word. There is... There's I mean, even Europe had tears of people. Well, there's a difference between America. Absolutely, but there's a difference between we just don't, we don't handle, we don't deal with people on, the, on that side of the, of the tracks. Right. And here in America, is is different from that that level of caste system, especially uh, at this time in history in India, yeah. which was absolute. Because in America, it could still be like, uh, it's kind of fun to have him at the party because he's just kind of gauche. Let's let's do this. This will be fun, you know. Or you know, you can jump, even though people might might. Uh, look down and you can kind of jump through different tiers under certain circumstances. There's no jumping. There was no jumping at that, at that time between things. But anyway, um, where was it going with this? Oh, so yes, obviously, um, even the people that are important in history, there are times that we say, well, I thought I knew all about, we, we tend to think we know all about the Spanish Inquisition. Well, they were evil for, you know, for the whole time, unlike places like England. You no, they were much better than England, and then they they become much they became corrupt by the end. Um, Johnny Appleseed, we'll talk about him. Uh, but I mean, there are people that you think you know, or you even sit there and go, "I've never even heard of this guy." Like um, uh, up until I was I don't know junior high or no, it was, it was late uh, elementary school. Nobody had ever heard of Casimir Plasky. And it was nothing. I remember when they made Casimir. I remember when they came up with Casimir Pulaski Day, and, and I'm like, who's that? You invented a holiday. Do you know why? Nobody wanted the Polish road in Chicago. Okay, let me back up. That's why he got, that's why they, they, they made the holiday. Why him? Not you. Because they couldn't find any other Polish people. Oh! Take thy beak from out my heart. Um, Okay, we'll have to talk about Casimir Pulaski in about 50 years. But, very important guy. But most Americans don't know anything about Casimir Pulaski. And you go, but he's really important. You go, uh-huh. You even have a holiday. 
Same, well, he's not really in Illinois. Anyway. Yeah, he is. I mean, the same year, 1706, Irish Presbyterian minister, Francis McKinney, established the first presbytery in the, in the Americas. Called uh, to be the pastor uh, of the church in uh, Rehoboth, Massachusetts. Actually, he was called by a bunch of Episcopalians. But anyway, uh, to start a church in Snow Hill, in what's now called Maryland, and it broke ground in uh, 1683. But a Presbyterian church isn't really Presbyterian until you get a Presbyterian. Because Presbyterian isn't really theology. At its core, Presbyterian is polity. It's not necessarily the doctrines of the church. It's the doctrines of how you structure a church. Polity means, Pol polity means the politics, how, how you actually do the, the functions of a church. Oh. Yeah, make decisions, etc. So a presbytery is a group of ruling elders that oversee a geographic area that's got a bunch of different churches in it. So it's a little bit like a Catholic diocese or like we have a, a, a different districts around the United States. It's different in how it does it, but in essence, it's you have to have a clump of churches with some elders, and they oversee the clumps of churches. Then you're because pres. Anybody know? You remember we talked about presbyteros. What does Presbyterian come from? The word presbyter comes from presbyteros. I just told you. But what does that mean? Elder. Yeah, it's the it's the Greek word for elder, and so a Presbyterian by definition is an elders-driven church, but not the congregation being elder-driven. It's the clump of congregations being driven by a bunch of elders. Anyway, 1706, there's enough Presbyterian-ish. i got to call it Presbyterian-ish because they're not Presbyterian until you get a Presbyter. Anyway, Presbyterian-ish churches in the area that McKinney could actually oversee the creation of the first Presbytery in Philadelphia, and thus the PCUSA church is formed. What will eventually become the PCUSA? It's not USA yet. There's not states. But you know what I'm saying. The church in America. But I can't call it that because then you confuse it with the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA Church. Because there's two of these, right? There's the PCUSA, which over the time became extremely liberal, so that by the 1930s, a group of Presbyterians broke off to create their own more conservative church. So the PCA Church, um, which is much smaller, but not quite as much. So, Anyway, we'll talk more about that when we get to, get to that. So deal with that. But that's why you have two different Presbyterian churches. Peace, Presbyterian Church USA, Presbyterian Church in America. And if you find yourself going, well, that's just kooky, you're right. I mean, it's people split over goofy things, and we have just minute differences. Their differences are a little bit more prominent, but the fact that they named themselves this suggests that they didn't want to separate themselves from the tree too far. Okay, 1709, the Great Frost came. We talked about this last week. Temperatures hit record lows that winter, 10 degrees lower than anything they've ever felt, ever, in the history of, of feeling temperatures. Pardon me? Uh, the Thames froze, not only the Thames, but uh, the Baltic froze. The canals in Venice froze. Whole winter, whole winter wheat crops failed. Chickens, livestock froze in the barns no matter what they could do. Trees in the forest exploded because of the rapid, t rapid temperature drop. Um, Louis... Did you hear about that? A Louis complained it was cold in Versailles. I'm just saying. Travelers died all the time. 
by for exposure. It was just dangerous to go from town to town. It, I mean, just Europe is stymied. Over a million people died. 600,000 people in France alone in a year's time. Pardon me? Well, in part, yeah, actually. Thousands more went to the Americas, swelling the population in the colonies with people who aren't English. And if you remember from last week, they even tried to go to England. Remember? They tried to connect with England. The Amish said, can we settle in England? And England went, no, we're closing our borders. We barely have enough stuff for us. Go somewhere else. So now the colonies, the population's almost doubled in the span of a year with all these people who not only aren't English, don't necessarily like England. Do you see how that might be important in 50 years? So it's sort of like 4,000 French. Yeah, but, but they're all settling in the English colonies because Spain doesn't want them because they're not necessarily Catholic. And so you've got all these, 250,000 goes up to nearly 500,000 in the English colonies. Yeah. What about the, the French territory? Did anyone go there? Some, but very few. Especially the French did. I mean, if, if there are people from France trying to leave and, and go. Most of them settled along here, but again, still fairly sparsely populated because they still don't have many, as many cities or things. You want to go that far north with all the cold. Well, there's that too. Although it was, why would they go south if they're freezing out in Europe? Well, actually, a lot of this is south of that. But yeah. you forget how, how north Europe is. The, I mean, like London hits about here. So. Anyway, so scientists still don't know why. We still don't know why it was so suddenly so cold. But yeah, this is a painting of Venice. They're ice skating on the on the, on the, on the canals in Venice because I mean. There's somebody going, oh, this is fun. Anything north of that, they're like, fun? Nothing. This is horrible. But yeah, the Baltic froze over. Once the spring came and things started thawing, that little ice age that's been going on since roughly 1300 starts receding. And over the next 25, 40 years, it starts getting warmer and warmer and warmer after that. Yeah? Was this the one where wolves were able to penetrate London? Yep. Actually, there are a couple. Yeah, there, the Vesuvius had erupted a couple years before. There are a couple of different things, but nothing that would, that would that would account for this much change. Because climatologists are like, oh, could that have been that? I mean, they threw a lot of soot up, but but even when Krakatoa did like the massive thing, it didn't do this much damage. They really don't know. There's a period of low sunspot activity. Maybe it's a perfect storm. Maybe it was all the stuff together that all did something bizarre. And there is. It's, it's just cycles. Yep. All right. got to end this. 1714. Big changes in England. So fighting lots of wars, doing lots of different things, poor Anne is not a healthy person. She she negotiates that, theory, that treaty of Utrecht, setting Spain and, and, and Austria against each other, getting most of, of a large chunks of, of Americas for, for England, and she's just not doing well. And so she finally suffers a stroke and dies in August, leaving no heir. She was pretty young. Um, uh, not as, well, I mean, youngish. Youngish, I mean, she was in her, I think in her 40s. Yeah. Um, have kids. Have kids. Before you go to war? Yeah, well, just, I think the moral of the story, if you're a royal, is 
have kids. I mean, seriously, look at look at look at what happened with the most recent royals. I mean, England is like, ah, beautiful ladies, you know, just okay. not that the queen will ever die, you know. But, but thanks to thanks to an agreement set out in 1701, there isn't these wars of succession like Spain had. They had this all figured out. They knew exactly who was supposed to take over, and it wasn't. A Catholic, right? Because there are rules about that. So it can't be James. James is not going to be happy about this. So the crown automatically goes to her nearest non-Catholic relative, Georg Ludwig, German House of Hanover, <coughs> King George the First. So suddenly we have a, a Germanic king of England. England, who had come to resent William of Orange for being Dutch, now has, even though they begged him to come, now has a king who doesn't even speak English! Not very well. He eventually figures out how to do it, but even then it's not really well. How do you think they're going to enjoy this succession of King George's? The next month, Louis Fourteenth finally dies. So like, all of Western Europe uh, is just in flux. Uh, the, the Queen of Spain dies that same year. Everybody's dying. Everything's up, up for grabs right now. So James Francis Edward Stewart says, I got snubbed. My sister was queen, and now some German guy that nobody wants. This is my time. This is my time. I will bring Catholicism back to England. I will be the king of England, Ireland, and Scotland. He writes to the Clement, he writes to the Pope Clement the Eleventh, who, I'm sorry, just has a tradition of taking exactly the wrong side on everything. And he says, quote, It's not so much a devoted son oppressed by the injustices of his enemies, as much as a persecuted church threatened with destruction which appeals for the protection and help of its worthy pontiff. You think? It's not just that I spent my whole life wanting to be king. It's that the Catholic Church is under fire. <laughs> we need your help. I'm... He should be in PR. He totally should be. So the rebellion is on, and that's where we'll pick it up next week, with them bringing Catholicism back to England and Ireland and Scotland. How would you synopsize? 30 seconds. How would you synopsize what's going on here? Same thing that's going on now. Actually, I'll just end with that. So how's, how's Europe doing? You know, pretty much the exact same stuff that's going on now. Not that this is boring because it's the same old, same old, but rather that you say, what can we learn about how to do things and what will happen if we do the exact same things that people have done before? And how do we as a church say, I don't want to just surf the politics because people aren't going to change in and of themselves. I need to change the people, not just the politics. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, I thank you so much that you aren't just another king. I thank you that this isn't just another life philosophy. Lord, I thank you that you're here to change us that you don't put your faith in kings or not kings, in laws or not laws. Lord, I pray, help us to be your people and help us to make a difference in this world by changing people. I give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.